Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. I attribute my success to this. I never gave or took an excuse. Is a quote by the lady with the lamp, Florence Nightingale, the mother of modern nursing. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today. Someone who is leading one of the largest reproductive services companies worldwide, with clinics across Asia, Europe, and the Pacific. Our guest today is Virtus Health's Group Chief Executive Officer, Kate Munnings, who oversees Virtus's clinics, hospitals, and diagnostic services, specializing in genetic and molecular testing. She was previously Chief Operating Officer of Ramsey Healthcare's Australian business, consisting of 72 hospitals. Prior to this, Kate was Chief Executive Operations at Transfield Services, now Ventia, following an earlier career in law with prominent firms and as a partner with Cause Chambers Westgarth and Baker McKenzie. Alongside her role at the helm of Virtus Health, Kate is Chair of Digital Health Cooperative Research Centres and served as a board member for the South East Sydney Local Health District with New South Wales Health. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Argentina, Ghana, and Turkmenistan, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blendham Partners, Board and Executive Search Firm. In at times a very moving and inspirational conversation, Kate sheds light on a remarkable career that started as an HIV AIDS nurse in the most challenging of times to now leading an organisation and helping families the world over. She shares how she made the leap from nursing to law, from operations to executive, from the hardship of immigration centres to the complexity of the modern day hospital, and achieving as a CEO in three years an impressive growth in company value of over 500%. Finally, Kate touches on the essence of leadership, camaraderie, compassion and courage and why big miracles still happen. So sit back and enjoy the hardest opportunity on offer. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So one in six couples in Australia have experienced infertility. That's correct. What does that actually mean? It means one in six couples struggle to get pregnant. Like we grow up as young people thinking we um, are frightened of getting pregnant. What happens if we get pregnant, particularly in times gone by? But actually getting pregnant is getting more difficult, particularly as we have children later. 
1900, the average life expectancy was 42. Yeah, right. Okay. And now we have in 2023, the average age of our first child is 32. Our bodies have not evolved as quickly as medicine has kept us alive and changed to keep us alive longer. So that has created challenges when it comes to fertility, as well as, of course, lifestyle factors. So what are the lifestyle factors? Oh, geez. There's a lot of debate about the lifestyle factors, but I think they're mainly diet, exercise, the usual suspects. We never before carried phones in our pockets. I wonder whether there's going to be research in the future that identifies that as a challenge. We sit down. The sedentary life is not good for men. They're sitting all day, whereas in the past they were active all day out and doing more working on farms, working in agriculture. That was more how men spent their day. And today they're sitting down far more than ever before, and that's not good. So there's various factors that people think contribute to it. The contribution rate the, or the learnings from the men's side, what what are you learning there? And you said well, a few points, but is the stats going up? And yeah, of it? yeah. Because well, it's not something people discuss, I assume, Kate. No, everyone often and cultures often believe that fertility issues are female related. Yep. It is true that eighty percent of healthcare decisions, particularly in the fertility space, are made by women. So women lead the decision making, but in fact, fifty percent or at least of infertility is male factor related. So sperm count has reduced by 50% in the last 20 years. And that is plus other um, conditions. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's something that we should all be talking a lot more about. So what's being done, I guess, to, to regenerate that? <laughs> well, we're trying to educate people to improve. Improve, improve. okay. There's, yep. a lot of, there's a lot of work done in both natural as well as medical remedies to yeah. try and improve sperm count and sperm mobility and motility and all the sort of factors that contribute. I think, again, it is down to lifestyle and our doctors are working with our scientists to really try to do research to identify some of the causes and actually prevent some of the um, challenging experiences that the people we, we work with have. So do the young men and women or older men and women in this day and age how many people are really aware of this, Kate? Is it a very small percentage? Well, people don't talk about infertility. For some reason, it's always been stigmatized, yeah. like particularly if you can't get pregnant, there's something wrong with me, you know, in a very negative way. Yeah, right. And I think that it's important to have discussions about fertility choices, about fertility options and about infertility so that people are much – so, so it loses its stigma and people get educated and informed. Um, and that's why at Virtus Health and our network of clinics, we, um, we engaged in uh, a documentary, creating a documentary to try and stimulate that conversation. So that's the genesis of that, of the documentary? Yeah, Big Miracles. Yeah, that was the genesis. We really wanted to, we, we funded, um, we, well, we sponsored, a documentary called Misunderstandings of, of Miscarriage. And we found that really improved the discussion on miscarriage, the causes, the trauma experiences that women had, families had where there was miscarriage. And it changed our 
bereavement policy. So we now name miscarriage as a reason for people to take bereavement leave yeah. or personal leave. Um, so we saw that a documentary can actually lead to change. And that's where the idea, my colleague had a, the idea of why can't we do the same and have that same dialogue when it comes to um, fertility and infertility. And so we um, met a producer and, and discussed making this documentary. Can I just take you back for a second yeah. on miscarriage, also a topic yep. you don't yep. necessarily discuss openly? No. What's the stats there? Are they going up? One in four. And is that going up and up and up? Or what's that? Uh, it's been pretty stable at one in four, but but – if you are like a lot of people who experience miscarriage, a lot of women who experience experience multiple miscarriage. So it can be, it is very traumatic for families and there is a true grief process. And that's something I think people don't understand and don't accept. They sort of almost, particularly in the past, it was almost dismissed uh, as, well, don't tell anyone you're pregnant and and don't worry, keep it all a secret yeah. just in case. Yeah. Whereas actually you probably should talk about it a bit more and at least have some people that know you, that care about you, that know that you're pregnant. So if you do miscarry, if you are a one in four, then you can um, get the right support and including in the workplace. So, of course, in our workplace, we provide a lot of support and we would always nurture anyone who's been through and show compassion to anyone who's been through a miscarriage. On the other side, big miracles. Yep. So when did it start and who put it together and what, what's the, the end aim of it all? Well, my colleague um, came up with the idea after we completed our support of the mis uh, misunderstandings of miscarriage, and it just came together through the energy of our team. Our COO at the time and our some of our business development team, they reached into various producers and we found someone who had a lived experience who, who was really passionate about the the topic, and we've really worked hard with them to make sure that it is shows a diverse range of experiences yep. and is documentary in nature in that it's educational and really informs the community. And we've um, had feedback that young couples who have gone through a fertility treatment, they're saying it's helped their parents understand what they've gone through and helped particularly that older generation where you just sort of had to deal with things. It's helped them understand it, talk to them with more compassion and support, and um, yeah, really started a conversation. So many volunteers. Yes, yes, a lot of people wanted to be involved. What sort of um, numbers are you talking, Kate? Okay. We're on the second series now, and I think there would be at least forty people who want to share their stories. And I think in today's world, sharing stories is a way people learn. And I think people who have been through a fertility experience or an infertility experience want to do something to give back and pay it forward. And by sharing their stories is one way they can do that. Any particular moving points for you, Kate? Oh, stand out? thousands. I think the the challenge and and with what the work that we do is that 50 on average, um, the outcome um, depends on the person, depends on the the work in the lab, our embryology labs are critical to success. I don't think the community understands that. The right. magic happens in the lab. Right. Um, and that's where we invest all our time and effort is in the quality of the technology and the, the embryologists that, and the people in, in the embryology lab where the embryos are created. I think despite all of that, there's still people who don't have the outcome that they want. 
And that's where it's often very sad and you really, your heart breaks. But what we try to do is to actually give them closure and have an understanding of why they couldn't achieve the outcome they were looking for. But they're the stories that are always the hardest for me. You know, there's many diverse stories of families being created in many ways. You know, we serve every sector of the community. We provide specialist services to the Orthodox Jewish community. We're the leading fertility preservation um, service for the transgender community, those who are going through gender reassignment, for the Muslim community, for the Asian community. So we, we have a really diverse range of people providing diverse ranges of services. We, we sponsor the Pinnacle Foundation. So we have three scholars at the moment who are from the LGBTQI plus community who are working with us and being trained in different disciplines. Um, we obviously, uh, we're part of Rainbow Family. So we, we, are the largest provider of fertility preservation services for cancer patients. Right, so okay. it sort of goes the whole spectrum. People think of fertility care and fertility health services being very one-dimensional of couples receiving IVF, but it's actually hugely diverse. And you have to be culturally aware of what is appropriate for various cultures and respectful to them all. What's coming over the hill, Kate, in terms of new technologies or oh, breakthroughs? Well, I believe that the next five years are going to be transformational in this industry. The technology and the application of artificial intelligence is going to have a huge impact. And the other aspect that will have a huge impact is genetics. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, mapping the whole human genome cost was so high in price that it couldn't happen. Right. Today, it costs $1,000, and we're learning more and doing more research in the genetic causes of infertility and how genetics, understanding people's genetics, can help the treatment plan for those who have infertility or mm -hmm. experiencing infertility. There's also technology in the application of AI. We have just finished the world-first randomised controlled trial on the embryo selection algorithm that Virtus Health developed in collaboration with Harrison AI. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the first application of AI where you select the embryo most likely to result in a baby via an algorithm. Um, how does that, how does that work? What do you well, mean? it's, it's, they, they look at the micro changes in the embryo over a five day period by looking at the time-lapse video. Right. So it's it's what a human couldn't do, which is observe changes over a five-day period every seven minutes, um, right. and the algorithm's designed to do that. Now, what it is, what AI, I think, does in health services, and particularly in, in our, our, in our organisation, will be clinical decision support. It will augment clinician experience, it won't replace a clinician. But my right. view is that a clinician who chooses to use technology will replace a clinician who won't. So that's that's my prediction. And and we've developed the Precision Fertility Digital Platform, which has AI decision support integrated into it. It has the ability to um synthesize data in a way where you can gain insights from it. So we've got, you know, a lot of health organizations have historical clinical data, but the way it's stored, the way it's captured, and you can't ever gain any insights. 
So you can't see that historically for a patient with certain conditions, this treatment has been more successful than an alternative. That's what mm-hmm. I'm looking at. Okay. And and with the Precision Fertility Digital Platform, we will be able to do that. So it will make our clinicians give them tools that won't exist anywhere else. And it's really hard to do in healthcare. I'm the chair of the Digital Health CRC and I see everyone striving to gain the benefits of of in- data insights yep. um, in health services, but it's so hard to do it because we're either capturing data through paper or through historical platforms that don't allow for this sort of a- clinical analytics. Bearing all this in mind, is it getting more affordable? That's the goal, and that's it's, our goal. It's pretty tough, isn't it? Well, it's it. You're right. It's often highlighted that in healthcare, innovation adds cost, doesn't remove cost. The work we're doing, I believe, will remove the cost because it will improve time to pregnancy, so get people pregnant quicker. Their treatment will be more personalised. And I think we will be, as an organisation and as a health service, more able to take risk on outcomes and give people price certainty because we'll be more able to predict outcomes. And has the classification of fertility changed? Well, yes, as a few years ago, the World Health Organization moved infertility from being a medical condition to a disease. And that's, that's a really positive thing because that means that, um, governments are more, it, 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 it's, it was intended to open up more funding and, and support for the treatment of infertility. And I think most countries, including China, are noticing a decline in their fertility rate. In fact, China is proposing a law to allow single women to get support to have children on their own. That's groundbreaking. Yeah, it's pretty groundbreaking. So countries are all concerned about their fertility rate. So supporting fertility, and in Australia, we're extremely lucky. We have Medicare support for fertility treatment, and that means that far more people are able to access this really important service. Where are we in terms of technology, Kate? Are we at the leading edge, or where where does Australia sit? Australia is, I think Australia is pretty good. Um, Israel is is generally a leader when it comes to health and technology, and identifying the technology to improve health outcomes. Australia is seen globally as a good place to start for startups to actually um, nurture their idea and uh, test it. Incubator type. Incubator type environment. We are an incubator environment and, and we both at the digital, my role at the Digital Health Cooperative Research Center and Virtus Health, we, in both roles, we work with startups to try and, um, help them define the problem. Often a startup will define the problem without reference to the end user. So they define, they try to solve a problem that isn't the big problem for the, for the clinician. So we work with startups at Virtus to help them define that problem. So it will actually be adopted. We look at how it has to be integrated in the workflow because really if it's too hard to use technology, people won't adopt it. And we look at how does, how do you get insights from clinical data? That's, that's sort of the, the big contribution that a legacy company like ours can offer to a startup. We are at Virtus, we're the, um, partner to the 10X at UNSW on women's health. Yeah, and right. and that's how we help them. We help startups navigate to find the problem that they really should be trying to solve 
and then commercialise it by working with a legacy, more legacy company that can help them steward, steward it through. Do they need to go offshore for capital ultimately or can they uh, Well, sometimes, yes. It's all dried up. The, there used to be a whole lot of VC funding and that's all dried up at the moment. I tend to believe you've got to be constantly looking to disrupt yourself because otherwise someone will disrupt you. And so as a legacy company, I think it's really important or a more traditional company. That's what I mean. We're not, I think it's really important to be working with the startup community because there will be a great idea out there that will ultimately disrupt you if you're not a part of that solution. A fertility education then. Yep. Um, Is there enough of it at school? Well, one of my colleagues actually runs a program called Fertility Matters. It is targeting school kids so they actually understand their fertility more and ask the right questions rather than uh, reverting to Dr. Google and getting all sorts of ideas. So I don't think it is like when I was at school, which was a long time ago. So <laughs> it was all about contrast, you know, it was about how not to get pregnant. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? So what you should do in that regard, but it wasn't about how to get pregnant and how to care for your fertility. So what is happening then, say for a single female? What's the opportunities for them now? Well, obviously, uh, there's been a lot of media recently about egg freezing, and that is a fertility preservation option. It's not a guarantee, as we always share things a guarantee in life, but egg freezing does not guarantee preservation of your fertility. It gives you a better chance if you're unlikely to have planned to have children until you're older. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And what, is, what would be the advice? When should we have children? Like that obviously has, is that well, change? Well, like, what, actually, what would be your window you'd actually recommend? Well, you know, based on 120 years ago, we died by the time, the average life expectancy was 42. Yeah. And therefore, our bodies were designed to have children between 15 and 25. Now we live till we're in our 80s. So, but our bodies are still <laughs> designed to have children between 15 and 25. So eggs are the first cell that start to deteriorate in the body. And it's quite important that we, um, that we think about it in that context. Like you have to be prepared. You have to either be prepared to sort of consider preserving your fertility or run the risk of if you have children later, there is a higher chance of you not being able to conceive. Kate, what's leadership to you then? And the only reason I'm changing so quickly, big responsibility. Yeah. Um, it must be exhilarating working in an atmosphere where you're changing people's lives like you do on a daily basis. So how do you lead in that sort of environment? Well, I've always felt that it's important to fear not trying more than you fear failure. Um, and that's something I remind myself. And so I've always tried to take the hardest opportunity on offer and this one's been a challenge. This opportunity has been being the CEO of Virtus Health has been challenging. You know, I started in March 2020, which was not a good time to start your first CEO role. But I think leadership for me is about courage. I've always felt you have to have the courage to take a risk. You have to have the courage to be vulnerable. And as I said, not fear failure. You have to have the courage to make the hard decisions. You have to be resilient. You have to give confidence to others. Not that you're falsely cheery, but you've got to realize, and I think experience teaches you this, that you go through ups and downs. And just because you're in a down doesn't mean you should quit or doesn't mean it's going to last forever. You've got to be resilient because leadership is hard and 
you'll go through cycles and you've got to be authentic. I think you've got to be who you are because nobody in today's society in particular, people can sense insincerity and no one wants that. Mm. And and so I just try to be who I am with all my imperfections and don't try to be um, anything that I'm not. And that's they're the important elements that sort of I guess I think about when I think about leadership. You've had absolutely remarkable career, which we'll cover off in the next <laughs> 45, 50 minutes or so. But I've never seen anything like it, how you've where you've come from and what you've done, how you've leapt through sectors and roles and achieved what you've achieved. But you started out with a heart condition as a young child, didn't you? Yep, yep. So it wasn't, was never going to be easy. So what was that? I was born with a pulmonary stenosis and an atrial septum defect, which is an old-fashioned hole in the heart. But importantly, my pulmonary valve um, was way too narrow and it meant that I wasn't getting enough oxygen. So I was what they called back in the day a blue baby because my lips and fingernails were blue and I used to hide to sleep because I didn't I was oxygen deprived and therefore um, it was, you know, I got extremely tired. And back in the day, um, it was one of the early, I had one of the early um, cardiothoracic surgeries. In yeah. How the, old were you? I was five yeah, when okay. I had that. And they told my parents I wouldn't survive, but I did. And then uh, they told me I would be a runt and I'm not. Um, and then they told me I wouldn't work and I have. <laughs> um, and then they told me I shouldn't have children and I <laughs> so, um, good doctor. So, so, well, it's it's just if I psychoanalyze that, they're trying I, to, to keep, keep things safe for <laughs> mum and dad, aren't they? Well, they're they're just you know people will tell you the worst case scenario, but I tended, you know, I think that sort of life experience at an early age taught my um, healthy disrespect for authority, um, and so I've often not listened to what I can't do, um, and that sort of built a sort of determination, I guess. Well, what did mum and dad do for, for a gig? Um, my dad has a PhD in chemical engineering, and he worked in that field and then worked in early computing back okay. in the day when they were the size of a room, and my mum's a psychologist, so she's a child psychologist and worked for many, many years at the Cerebral Palsy Alliance. So they must have been petrified watching their little girl get operated on. What, four, they in, were, four in ten chance in those days? Oh, something like that. And they were, it was a terrible experience for them. As a parent now, you can't imagine what it must be like to see your child. I was in hospital for weeks and weeks and today- In one of the old cribs? In the old cribs and the oxygen mask was a box over your head and all that t- type of thing. And they crank open your chest. So I can remember waking up with such pain. I can remember it to this oh, you day. you still remember it, can you? Yeah. And um, thinking- Gosh, like I was in such pain as a child, I was screaming. But then I saw the surgery being done and I knew why I was in pain. (laughs) Once I did nursing, I I saw I actually worked for a short time with my surgeon and the the nurse that, yeah, I did a practical. Really? Yeah. And um, I used to go to the hospitals and speak to people teenagers or kids who and their families who were having similar surgery after. I was okay and, and sort of just to give them the reassurance that it would be okay because having heart surgery as a child is never good for a family. It's frightening. So having someone come and say, I've been through it and I'm okay was something that, yeah, I really liked to, to do. So was that the, the reasoning behind pursuing a career in, in nursing or 
partly I, you know, had a lot of operations at a young age. So yeah, I and, and I shark attack wounds to uh, to show for it. Yeah, you? pretty much. I've got the sort of zipper, as they call it, down the chest. And I was a bit of a rebel at school, so I didn't really work as hard as I should have. So nursing was an option for me. And um, I was in the first year of college nursing. So they moved from hospital nursing into college nursing. And I was in that first intake, which was a an interesting experience. So it was um it was fantastic. You were out of the house by the time you were eighteen, were you? I was. I moved out. Quite rightly, my parents was if you live under our roof, it's our rules and I wanted to make my own rules. So I moved out and worked while I was at uni, I worked in an aged care facility. I worked in the Montefiore home at oh, yeah. um, at Hunters Hill, yep. and I did permanent night shifts. So for weeks on end, I would do a double shift, and I would sit up and listen to the stories. At that time, it was a lot of um, people who had lived through World War Two, and doing night shift, I heard some of the most amazing stories of terrible experiences. But it was, I think. With every experience you have like that, you learn so much. Yeah, but the takeaway is the inspiration to live, isn't it? The inspiration to live and the importance of tolerance, I think. My father, my grandparents were actually German refugees to Australia. They okay. were allowed in um, from Germany. They were, they were Jewish. They've passed away now. Um, and they were allowed into Australia when... Barton accepted 10,000 refugees. Oh, yeah. And my grandfather used to tell me two things. One is that no group is all homogenous. Never assume everyone's the same. So his life was saved by a Nazi soldier. So, is that right? Yeah. So he, he, sh- I've, sh- I've written their story once, but, and so he used to always say that. And he used to always say that education is the only thing that no one can take away from you. Cause ov- obviously, when you leave a country and a- as a refugee, you, you only bring what you know. So they were the two big takeaways. And I think because my mother, my father's Jewish and my mother's Christian. Mm-hmm. My mother was always, it was important for her to teach us the import, the value of tolerance. And that was something that was, I think, drilled into us as children because had we been born in a different country in a different time, it, it would have been a very different experience for us. Gosh, because I think when you early moves in your career, wasn't it dealing with AIDS patients? Yeah. At the time, were very much stigmatized, weren't they? Yeah. I think, I think as I said, I've always tried to pick the hardest thing on offer because I think when you're doing something really hard and really challenging, it's where you learn and grow. And so when I was working at St. Vincent's- So this is the 80s? 80s, mid 80s. Um, and they opened an AIDS ward. I volunteered or I, I applied to work there and I was the youngest nurse at the time allowed to work in that environment, which was extremely challenging. It was the time of the Grim Reaper. Mm. Um, and when, um, as I often laugh when I think about that was a pandemic when the frontline workers were not hailed as heroes. You were often ostracized and it was a very difficult time for frontline workers as compared to, you know, the, the frontline workers and the experience during COVID. What do you reckon was the big difference there? Was it just absolute fear? I think it was fear. Um, I think it was, uh, it was easily stigmatized. Um, yep. and it was at that point inevitable death. So, yeah. um, I think they're the reasons why there was such a community reaction to it. Like, 
COVID was less discriminatory, whereas uh, AIDS and HIV targeted already groups of people yep. that were maligned by society. So, yes. so I think it was easier to to sort of um, so box them. Yeah, I think it was a very challenging experience, but a worthwhile experience too. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about people. Um, well, well, what did you learn? Because it takes. <laughs> It takes very special people yeah. to put themselves in that environment day in, day out. And uh, it's Yeah, it does. And it's at just watching death all around you, effectively, aren't you? And we had some of the most amazing specialists who immunologists and who pioneered and provide the most wonderful care. We had nurses who worked, who had returned to Australia from working in India with Mother Teresa to work on the ward. But equally, we had doctors who didn't want to treat AIDS patients, who wouldn't come to the ward to, you know, have a consult. Nurses on the AIDS ward took blood because doctors wouldn't take blood. So I took every morning after night shift, I'd go around and take blood from 36 AIDS patients. Um, wow. And so it was, it, it brought out the best and the worst in people. You scared? Never. No, no, not really. Um, I, in fact, I, no, the answer is a hard no. I could never remember being scared. Oh, um, we never knew what was causing it. Oh, uh, the only time I felt a little uncomfortable was the last day, and this is always a risk. The last day I worked there, I got a needle stick injury. Um, I'd given chemotherapy to a patient who had AIDS and HIV, Hep B, yep. and I wrapped up the needle and I pushed it in the bin and the needle came out into my hand. And I was a little worried then, and but not really. I'd never really, I felt like the thing that they did for us, like we understood it, we had education all the time. And I think if you, I guess it's an an example of where you exp you're educated and you have an understanding of something, it becomes less frightening. Hey, look, what, so what did you learn in regards to people there? And what did you learn in regards to leadership there? I learned you didn't have to be in a position of authority to be a leader. That was the most important lesson. There were people who were in positions of authority and showed no leadership. And there were people like my colleagues who weren't in positions of authority and showed true leadership. And that's, that really has lived with me. You know, there was, there was one time where I, um, I had admitted a young man into the ward who had come with his partner who and both of them were from the country and both had been rejected by their family because they were in a gay relationship they were gay yep. and um they I told the young man's boyfriend to go home because he was exhausted and the young patient should have survived and you know wasn't that sick he deteriorated overnight and a young intern and I worked really hard to try and keep him alive this was in a six-bedded ward so it wasn't in it wasn't as though he was in isolation on his own mm. and I rang a specialist and he said to me I'm not getting out of bed for an AIDS patient so that's what I mean by there were some who it brought out the worst in people it was not one of the aides, the the doctors that worked on the ward. It was a it was an external consult that needed to come in, but the intern and I tried our best. And when he died, I had to ring his boyfriend and tell him that he died, and that was probably one of the worst experiences. And he was as gracious as you could ever imagine. And I would have preferred it if he'd yelled at me and been really upset that that had happened. 
he was just sad that he'd lost the person he loved and and sort of that kindness that sort of i don't know the empathy that you need that was that was quite a that i still remember that couple to this day and they taught me a lot about things i guess how to respond with compassion even yeah. when something terrible has happened to you yeah, human you know? spirit's pretty amazing isn't yeah it? Kate, any other experiences or stories that come to mind? Yeah, like I, there was, I guess there were so many complex ethical issues in working in AIDS in the 80s. We had a patient who had AIDS and he'd contracted um, HIV through work, through sex workers, but he'd told his wife and we were bound by patient confidentiality to not breach that, but he told his wife he had cancer. And um, we talked to him about practicing safe sex and he said, oh, I can't because she'll know something's wrong. And I was really challenged by that. And one of the more senior nurses helped me sort of, well, went and spoke to him and tried to talk him through that that was not the right thing to do. But we were bound by confidentiality and that was, I think- So, what were the rules of, What were the rules then? Well, because you, te- you, know, you Technically, this, this person it was, was about to commit manslaughter. Uh, potentially, potentially, potentially well, yeah. Arguably, yeah. Yeah. So, well, the rules were you couldn't breach patient confidentiality and they still are today. And, um, and so it was about actually wow. speaking with him and having him realize that that was the wrong thing to do. And obviously, as a young person, that was probably that, that, that's where I was glad there were some more experienced people around me who could have those conversations. But it did generate my interest in the law. Like I, there were so many ethical issues, uh, that, that we experienced in that period that, that was sort of legal in, in nature that, that meant that I became very interested in the law and, and so I went back and did converted my nursing diploma to a health science degree and then did a law degree. You got to Harvard and INSEAD as well? I did. So I've sort of- You don't mess around. You don't do no. things half, half measures, do you? <laughs> no, I don't. Um, so yeah, I won two chief executive women's scholarships to go firstly to Harvard Business School and then to INSEAD Business School. And they came at pivotal times in my career. So I had been a lawyer for probably 20 years and I was, had applied to move into an operational role. I'd never run a P&L before. I'd never sort of, yeah, I'd never run a P&L before. And I had been the chief risk and legal officer and company secretary mm-hmm. at Transfield Services at that point. And I was applying to be the chief executive of operations and. I think I applied for that job thinking I've got to demonstrate that you should apply for roles when you've got relevant experience, mm-hmm. not necessarily the exact experience that that role required. I'd actually been company secretary in the boardroom when the board had said, we need someone who's an operator's operator in this role, a deep operation person. And I wrote a submission as to why I had the relevant experience. And I, the managing director called me into the office sort of three months after I'd written that submission to the board. And he said, be careful what you wish for because you've got it. And I- um, Did I say that company name? 
at Transfield yep. Services. Yep. So that was at Transfield Services. Which was going through some pretty tough times. Well, that's right. So I wrote about my experience in my submission to the board. I wrote about my experience in AIDS and how that prepared me for an issue that divided the community because one of the contracts that Transfield had at the time was providing the welfare and facil- facilities management services to the offshore processing centres on Manus and Nauru. So I explained how my experience as a AIDS nurse would prepare me for managing that that challenging environment. I um, talked about when I joined a law firm where the practice had sort of been decimated by departing partners and I rebuilt it. I talked about how I would apply that learning to some of the problem contracts that we had. And then I sort of outlined that all the people working in the team that I would inherit had deep operational experience. So why do you want someone with the same experience? Yep. You know, why don't you have look for someone with different That's, experience? It's a risk. Kate. It's a risk. It's a big yeah, risk. Kate. You know that. I know. I know. But the chairman at the time was willing to take the risk, as was the managing director. And it's it was again a very challenging period and a challenging thing to do to take on a large. I'd never run a P and L before, and the next day I was running a two and a half billion dollar P and L with. 9,500 direct reports, 9,250 of them were men. You know, it was sort of, it was a, it was a big risk and a big challenge. But again, you should not fear failure. And I feared not trying. And I feared, I felt an obligation to role model that risk taking because it is something that women hesitate to do more often than not. Um, and, I wanted to show that you actually could take a risk and make it work. And and that was a fantastic experience. And from then on, I've been in business roles. So I've been in, um, yeah, complex business roles. But I always seem to take on something that I've never, ever done before. And I have to lead and learn at the same time. So hold it for a second. I'm going to come back to Transfield because they were pretty tumultuous years. And they were. Some pretty adverse publicity there at one stage. But let's go back a bit before you talk on your big, your next big change. So you've built yourself a reputation in nursing. You've decided you've watched the law. It's good and it's bad. And you've you decided to pursue a career in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've got to go and educate yourself. You've got to go and find the right law firm. And you've got to find someone's going to back you. It's also a very interesting industry to work in, isn't it? Oh, yes. And back in the 90s, 93, I started as a, in private practice in a major law firm in Sydney. Yep. One of the, one of the best. One of the best. And, um, and it was a different world then, you know, it was like going from. So how were you seen? You know, you didn't, you you didn't come through the, the, the normal route. Yeah. Again, here we are. No, so I, I, different I, route again, right? No pedigree <laughs> at a time when pedigree was important. Yeah, um, particularly that industry. Well, when I entered the law at that time, I felt that individual con- contribution was all that mattered. And the, the dog-eat-dog sort of almost nursing had been all about a lot about camaraderie, particularly where I was working. It was about looking after each, out for each other and the the strength of a team. When I went into law, it was about individual contribution and people often seem to celebrate someone making a mistake because it arguably made them look better. It was very dog-eat-dog and very competitive. And I refused to buy into that. And I thought, if I fail, so be it. But I will not. 
I backed my belief that you get more done by building relationships of trust and gaining from cooperation than you do as an individual. So I went about, I, I often said that I was going <laughs> to, that I bought a bedside manner into the corporate world. And I think- What, what did you set out to do? Like why did, why did well, you- Well, I, I, I thought I, thought I, I would- You sound like you're, you're getting despondent by what you're seeing. Yep. So I can do something about it. That's th- part of me that yeah. Is that what it was it about? It was. It was that in nursing and healthcare is quite hierarchical. And I thought before you get into a position, a senior position, you've been there quite a while. And I thought I'm going to go out, do law, go into health policy, and change the create change through that way. Okay. But by the time I graduated from law, I had a mortgage, and um, so I ended up at a private law firm um, that was doing a large. A large case, it was the Copper 7 litigation, uh, and they were defending the manufacturer of the Copper 7 IUD, and the allegation was that the IUD had caused pelvic inflammatory disease and therefore infertility, ironically. And um, the defense was that they were – the other cause of pelvic inflammatory disease is often exposure to sexually transmitted diseases such as chlamydia. So they wanted a lawyer who – like I I was a lawyer who – understood the physiology of sexually transmitted diseases. So that was a unique combination. And so I went into private practice. I didn't like anything. I did that case, but I didn't like the medical legal space. Um, and so I ended up as a construction lawyer and became a partner in the construction practice. So uh, at at Cause Chambers Westgarth and then um, and then went to Baker McKenzie in a leadership role in their construction practice. What was that like? I loved construction. You know, it was more- it, it pretty, suited, straight, pretty straight talking. Well, salt of the earth people. So, that sort of suited me because I didn't have the pedigree, as as they say, and um, and or that that's how I felt. And Did you? Uh, did you feel that? Ah, uh, yeah, I did. I did. Everyone, everyone, when I did law, had done an arts degree or done something, and I would go to dinner, and they would talk about something highbrow that I, that had not been in my experience yet. I never felt inferior, but I felt like I didn't have the same pedigree as. So, where was your confidence levels? Ah, uh, gosh, I'm sure there were times where I felt like, do I really belong? But ultimately, the or way I'm going to prove them wrong. A little bit, yeah. That sort of that sort of kicks in the yeah. the I don't need to talk about some fancy novel to or a bit of Shakespeare or something like yeah, that. Yeah, to make yeah. a difference and to make an impact. And and ironically, when I used to go when I went to uni, like I spent when I did law school, I worked seven days a week for three years, often nursing a lot of shifts as well as studying, and I would go into uh, university in my uniform sometimes because I'd have to go to work straight from class. And not as if they were easy days either. And they were not easy days. And um, all the young boys would go, nurse, nurse. <laughs> and someone once said to me, I felt like being a nurse is close enough to being a servant, and I don't know how you did it. So there was a lot of judgment about and misunderstanding of what nursing was about and that it was a true profession and a very special profession. So because that was not in the experience set of those people. You is know. it valued enough today? Look, you look at the numbers. I've made a few calls in, in the sector. Yeah. We're so short on nursing. And you look at the hours they work, the money they get paid. 
Why would you do it? Yeah, like it's it's almost it used to be almost uh, that women were deemed able or appropriate to be nurses and teachers and therefore those professions were undervalued and underpaid and that hasn't really changed. But women have a lot more choice now and so are you really going to choose to sort of be undervalued and underpaid or are you going to choose a profession that's different? So um, I think that we have the most incredible group of nurses working for us and I've worked with many, many incredible nurses and nursing is actually a very diverse career. Like People should not underestimate that you can be a deep clinical specialist. I think you can be a manager, you can be an educator, you can be an academic. So there's a, a whole lot of career paths for nursing and I don't think the profession, wonder whether there's more the profession can do to sell those sort of options as well as just, as well as the sort of the ward work. So that's something that we try to do is create multiple career paths. And yeah, I think, right. I think that's something organize, healthcare organizations need to do is create career paths. So if you want to be a deep clinician, I also think that some of the, um, work being done by the Commonwealth with the Medicare sustainability mm-hmm. is about expanding the scope of practice. Like nurses mm-hmm. could do so much more than what they, uh, their scope of practice could be so much broader. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an opportunity to attract people back into the profession. In the past, you know, often the fee-for-service model and Medicare funding encourages doctors or other healthcare professionals to, to do certain tasks that nurses could do. Block funding. So um so I think that uh, I think that the government is very focused on expanding nursing scope of practice by more block funding primary care. Um, that's been the most recent release. So I think that could be something that I'm hopeful will um, make nursing a much more attractive um, career. Okay. So there you are, once being a nurse, the next thing you're mixing it with the um, the rough and tumble of construction. Yes. Some dodgy stuff happens there. Not really. Not really. I found I found construction quite an honourable f- profession, really. In fact, I married my main client, so <laughs> I have to say that. <laughs> it's a client retention strategy you can only use <laughs> once. But, um, yeah, I did marry my, uh, my main client, which at the time was um, – s- not unusual, but uh, a little controversial. But and I found the cons- you know, like it's different today. But I found a lot of the building company. It's a tough game. Tough game. Massive risk for sometimes very little return. Isn't exactly. It? Exactly. Like very. Asked, why would you do return. it? Yeah. Very. It's it's tough, and the, the union environment, the industrial environment, is tough. Um, getting getting skilled. A skilled workforce is getting tougher, um, just like other industries. And it was, um, but construction law was like, it was like a jigsaw. It was a puzzle and it was all about problem solving. And I think trying to, without a lot of optionality, solve those problems was, was a really important skill to learn because that's really what it was. It was problem solving. You had a contract. You had an issue and you had to solve that problem. Or you were writing a contract trying in a way that was clear enough so people didn't end up in having a problem. So it was it really honed your problem solving skills. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Kate Munnings. On our next episode, I sit down with Jeff Quartermain, Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of Perseus Mining. Well basically there's there's five things you need. You need decent assets for a start. You need money to be able to do your business. You need markets for your products. 
You need decent people who know what they're doing, and you need a social license to operate. And if one of those five ingredients is missing, you're going to struggle. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. Okay. So it hones the problem-solving skills, but something's lacking, isn't it? Because you don't stay in law. <laughs> well, I... I you know, it's, I, it's all good. You're going to win the, win the work, and you're working yeah. with some interesting people. Yeah, I decided... But was missing, wasn't it? Well, it, it, it was... I had a... There were a few things. It was, you know, I decided I didn't like being a partner. Um, once I made partner, the irony was that's often everyone's aspiration. But once I made partner, I felt it was more like being a sole practitioner, sharing overheads and my- You've got to win the money. Yeah. And you've got to sell. And yeah. I was not a salesperson. And You mean you bought your husband, didn't you? Well, I didn't. <laughs> that that was because of my incredible legal skills, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, but it was more, it, and it was more being a sole practitioner sharing overhead. So I, I want, I preferred being part of a team, and that's why I applied to be the general counsel and company secretary at Transfield Services, which was ironically low client of yours. No, they weren't. Okay. They weren't. I and and being a general counsel and company secretary, the focus was much more on corporate law. And I can remember saying to the chairman of the company at the time, yep. you know, I've never opened the Corporations Act. <laughs> you know? And he said, yes, but you've, you're the, you've reinvented yourself once before and you'll be able to do it again. And you're the right cultural fit and the right cultural fit is more important to us. And I That's thought- That's a big call. That was a big call, but- I think I know who that chair is. You I think say, you do. You want to say who it is? <laughs> that was Tony Shepard. Yeah, um, and, and things were going pretty tough for Tony during those days. Yeah, but he, he took that chance and um, I'll be forever grateful. And um, and it was like that. You could learn everything about M&A and about corporate governance, but if you're not the right cultural fit, that's where it all can come unstuck. So, he did take that risk and I, I hope I repaid him. Do women over-engineer what I can't do as opposed to what I can do? I think so, and I think you're sort of more conditioned not to get things wrong and not to fail, that failure is bad. But unless you fail, you don't ever learn and progress and grow. So I don't frame it as a bad thing. Um, I don't want it to happen, and I don't want it to happen often. And I've made mistakes, but there is nothing, nothing that I regret. All right, so what would you walk into? I walked into a company that was had previously been private yep. and then had listed yep. and um household name household name yep. and and we were migrating from being sort of where a private company to a listed company and all the corporate governance that comes with that as you say it's not high margin work there was a lot of M&A I started in two- well, was a lot, There was a lot of M&A. We did a lot of M&A, yeah. yep. including moving into the US and into Canada with a major joint venture into the Middle East, um, so a lot of international M&A, and it was an exciting couple of years. So, I started there in 2006, but in 2008, there was the GFC, yeah. <laughs> so, and that presented a whole set of challenges. You've got a crisis um, in front of you. Yeah, we've got a crisis in front of us. People have margin loans. Share price is tanking. FX is tanking. Like the foreign, the Australian dollar against the US dollar, and we had an exposure to the US dollar to US, and we did a very dilutive capital raising, which is on the record, and and that was a really really tough time. So why'd you stay? This is when this is when a lot of people leave the ship. Yeah, but you can't. 
if you think you can get away from difficulty, then you'll never end up anywhere. You'll never stay anywhere. Like, I really, really like the people. I really like the challenge. And I was lucky, you know, being general counsel company secretary. Uh, the And then, well, we went through, like, I, I had a role which was important and present but I was sort of, I always felt like I was on the sideline of a footy game and I wasn't on the field. I didn't have the pressure on me. I was there advising, supporting those people who had the pressure on them. And so what you I did- You can see the train wrecks happening. You can watch Well, the- you can watch it. And this is where if you're watching really carefully, you learn what to do and what not to do and how to behave and how not to behave. And you you see people that you want to aspire to be and people who you do not want to aspire to be. You see it all. And um, if you're watching really carefully. And after the GFC, I put my hand up to create an enterprise risk management capability in the company and mm-hmm. an internal audit capability. And then I put my hand up to take on procurement and media and communications and then eventually commercial management. So I sort so, of took- so, so the big point is you're putting your hand up. I'm putting my hand up uh, even to run reception when the customer service was at every opportunity to learn a new skill. I said, I'll do it. And at one point sort of felt that I had, and, and I think it was because I would go and try and negotiate a solution to a problem contract because, as I said, I was on the sideline. I wasn't on the field. And so, I don't carry the emotion and pressure of, I've got to solve this. So, you come at it with a more clear mind. And I was able to negotiate one of our problem contracts from a hard dollar contract to an alliance. And, And, you know, you could achieve a lot from that role. And having run onto the field when I took a P&L role, I do know the pressure is very different. So, yeah, so I, I was – Transfield gave me such a diverse opportun- a range of experiences through taking on so many different roles. Well, come on. So, you've run onto the field. I ran on – so, then, yeah. I, then I applied to be the chief executive operations yeah. of the largely government contracts, highly complex, including, you know, the offshore processing Come on, center. talk us through those. And I ran onto the field <laughs> and suddenly the pressure's all on my shoulders and uh, it's a very different experience. That's when I won the scholarship to go to Harvard. And it was interesting being in the US because I kept saying, often these courses you're trying to, you know, you're working with a a home team, a group of people to sort of solve your challenges. And I, um, my challenge that I wanted the my colleagues at Harvard to help me with was I'm moving from a functional role to a P&L role. And, you know, the best thing they did was go, so what? That happens here all the time. Lawyers become CEOs or they move into yep. a road. You've run a budget. You can, like, it was like the so what made me think, oh, it's in Australia where it often doesn't happen. But over in America, it's quite often that people move from function. In fact, it's encouraged for people from operational roles to move into functional roles and vice versa. So I came back with a new lease in life and, um, and a renewed confidence, I guess, that I hadn't done the wrong thing. And I had to win over. Um, my direct reports who were all sort of men who had worked with me as the, the general counsel and suddenly I was their boss and I think they were horrified. Yeah, um, so how do you go about doing that? I think, again, by working really hard to build 
relationships of trust and cooperation and by being honest. In fact, I think the thing I focused on was showing that I care about them as humans, as people. And that's the sort of, I guess that comes from my nursing background because it's actually authentic. I do care about them. And there was one direct report who the executive team weren't happy with his behavior. And I don't think he was happy to have me as his boss. And by the end, we'd built such a strong relationship that he said, oh, if you ever need someone coming. And that was someone who probably wasn't likely to, yeah, like he was, he was someone who had that high performing, but very arrogant style about him. And he changed completely. And I felt that it's about being caring. It's about caring at, about them holistically and building a relationship, you know, investing in that time, I think really. So what, so what is, so breaking it down the layman's terms, investing in time, what does that mean? Does that mean catching up with the, the coffees? Does that I mean, think it's know, having the honest conversation. Like I actually called the elephant in the room. You don't have to prove yourself with every conversation you have. You've made it. You're successful. You're really good at what you do. You do not have to prove it every time. And when you slap someone verbally, it's humiliating. And I once did it to him and said, see what that's like in a public forum to be verbally slapped down is humiliating. And you, it's just not how you get the outcome you're looking for. And so it's just being honest, I think. And that's, that's sort of like it was, again, it was a risk because when you're honest to people, they can not like it. (laughs) And it could have caused the relationship to deteriorate, but to his credit, it improved the relationship. And um, I hope that it helped him develop as an executive. Okay. So, you had a couple of little projects ahead of you at the time. You had government breathing all over you as a a business. Senate inquiries, um, death threats, all that type of thing. Yeah, it was really hard. Like, so talk us through the complexity. You know, this is immigration centers, etc. So this is not the, easy stuff. Yeah. So we had contracts with two governments: the government of Nauru and the government of PNG and and Manus Province. The in the center there were at least twenty different cultures, and we had to employ fifty percent local people, so yeah, Nauruans right. and Manusians. Okay. So that cultural clash was challenging about how it should work. And there was obviously a lot of politics at play. There was a lot of media about it, which which actually wasn't true. We had a staff that was so deeply caring about the asylum seekers and really wanted to provide, we provided about two and a half thousand sort of physical and mental programs a week to keep people physically and mentally occupied during that the the processing of their application for for asylum it was really it was a really difficult environment and we were very committed to making it as good as it could be for the people the asylum seekers in the center how, it, did, how did it how did it fare from you know you've been around the block hmm. you've seen some pretty awful stuff by this time in your life how did it fare the, the hardest thing was the 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 misinformation. So there were a couple of things. I had a lot of activists saying to me, your company should step away from the contract because the government's policy is a breach of international human rights law. And I'd say, look, I get it as a lawyer. I understand that there's an argument 
around international human rights law. But as a nurse, there's people there and they deserve the best care possible. So I don't care about the politics. I care about the people at the centre. And the activists, one activist actually said to me, well, I don't care about the people at the centre. I care about changing the government's policy. And I said, that's where you and I are very different. That was the hardest thing about it is that we deeply cared about the people. We provided the best services We employed the best people. All of the welfare work services we provided were staffed by teachers, educators, psychologists with tertiary, and we we screened – we did everything we could to create the best environment for the people in the centre. We trained – in partnership with TAFEs, we trained – local Mnuchins and Nauruans in Cert 3, so they became more enterprising. Businesses were starting on the island, created by the local people who were getting educated, but you'd come back to Australia and be the subject of the abuse and death threats. Yeah, right. And media reports that manipulated the truth. And it's the first time I actually believed in fake news, you know, that there was this mantra of fake news emerging. And I thought, Well, it's true. Things are reported multiple times and they're just wrong. So that was pretty hard. It was personally very hard to sort of actually show the resilience, but I felt very strongly that I needed to stand up for the people who were providing, working really hard to provide the best service to people who they felt needed it. Turnover of staff high or how'd you go? No, we we had um, a lot of our leadership staff, the leadership we had were former peacekeepers. Yeah. So they all stuck with it and they'd been in Timor and places like that. So some of our competitors would recruit from corrections, but we never saw that as the right place to recruit for. It was people who understood they needed to navigate complex communities. And we had to understand the Wontok system on Manus, which is the tribal system, because you couldn't appoint someone from a Wontok into an HR role because they had to employ from their Wontok. And oh, uh, yeah, right? so it was, it was quite complex. And like every community, there's very good people that are part of the community. So there were some wonderful Nauruan people that we worked with and wonderful Mnuchin people that we worked with. That's the first game on the field, Kate. How'd you perform? Looking back, how'd you give yourself a score? I thought I did all right. Senate inquiries were very challenging as a first experience, but I think we did okay. Like we, um, that was just one contract. Like I did the NBN rollout. We, we managed the defense bases, social housing. So it was a lot of complex contracts. So, and that was just one. So it was, I think I feel, I look back on it and feel like it was a very positive experience. And I think I left the organization and my first PL role in a better place than where I start when it started. So you want to leave something in a good place, yeah. um, not just because you're there, but because of what you have taught others and left behind. And I, th- I felt pretty good about it. And I thought that the controversy around that contract at the time might have made it hard for, you know, make you almost unemployable, you know, because it was so controversial. But ironically, people saw the complexity and, and, um, and the, hopefully the compassion in which we were managing the complexity. And I was recruited to then to Ramsey. Before you go there, what did the chairman say before you left? 
By this time, the chairman was Diane Smith-Gander. Yeah. She was probably someone who I will always be grateful that she gave me an opportunity and supported me through that period. So, she was um, very positive when I left and we still are in touch to this day. Okay. Ramsey. Ramsey. Big business. Yep. Never run a hospital before, and suddenly I'm running 72. What's new? What's new? <laughs> you know, so- um, look, it up so, and look it up on the way home, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. And look, you know, I think the was somewhat- Affordability was becoming a challenge in health, and uh, having run a business that is a very low-margin business and had to, you know, I was trained in lean, which is something that was really- you know, I applied in in health, and really, um, I think bringing some of the learnings of how to be more efficient and get things done in a different way was something that Ramsey were looking for. So, um, when I joined Ramsey, there was a lot of pressure from health funds because of the rising premiums and yep. the the re- people leaving health private health insurance. And so, there was a pressure to become more affordable both for us and for for the health fund. So, that was a focus of my time there. And how you drive sustainable efficiency in health services is by harmonising, digitalising and automating. And healthcare is notorious for doing the same thing multiple different ways and, and Ramsey was no different. So, how did you go about solving that problem? We developed what we called the Evolve program, which was we looked at benchmarking similar services and identifying best practice and everyone moving to best practice. And that was one aspect. We looked at what transactional HR and, and finance could be done more as a service centre. We looked at how do we work on our service lines. When you run 25 mental health facilities, and the health funds ask for a what's your mood disorder program and 25 different health uh, mental health services write 25 different mood disorder programs that's not the optimum way mm-hmm. you you could actually bring out a group together create one share it across the 25 so it was just about thinking differently and to be honest the way the autonomous way healthcare had been set up in the past was right for the time you run your hospital like it's your own business. You grow it like it's your own business. And that sense of ownership was right for the time. But once affordability comes into play, you've got to, you've got to all migrate. You've got to share more and harmonize more and work together as one and network rather than as a series of small businesses. And that's what we, that's what we did. How do you deal with resistance? Oh, that was hard. You know, the biggest problem. Because that's notorious too with healthcare. Oh, it's massively notorious. I think I spent a lot of time talking to people and and trying to explain the why this has to happen um, and how you can contribute. And that's where lean was so important because lean is about the people who are actually doing the work solving their problems. So we created obey rooms in every hospital and the cleaners were suddenly listened to and people were saying, because everyone went round and talked about they set a set of KPIs as yes. a, as a group, yep. and you measured how many times you cleaned a room. And suddenly, the cleaners had a voice. They were saying, "Well, hang on, you don't tell me that that patient's being discharged. Therefore, I clean the room, and then they get discharged, and then I've got to reclean it, and that's waste, and that's what you're trying to eliminate." Yep. And so it was 
it w- it suddenly created this sense of team and everyone was working together and understand what every person did in the service and they were all working trying to solve their problems. So it was a really I think that helped the engagement. But change is really hard in healthcare. The challenge is it's not going to make everyone happy immediately. And I think what you need, the most important thing in leading change is cabinet solidarity because once there will always be resistance and once people sense a chink in the armour, that's where they'll go. Yeah, so that that's what I learned there was that unless everyone says, right, this is what we need to do and we're all – we'll have a robust debate of whether it's right or wrong in the cabinet room, but once we get out there, we may disagree but we'll commit. That's the only way you actually succeed in leading change. You mess around if people don't commit? I guess it depends, you know, but you try to sort of talk people around and you try to sometimes, you you can't convince everyone and sometimes you've got to convince the person that that person listens to the most um, and find other strategies because there will always be resistance. But ultimately, if people won't commit, some people do need to move on and that's what I've really come to understand there's some people who cannot cope it is just too stressful they won't succeed and they're better off to move somewhere else and that's not a bad thing no probably in hindsight they appreciate often they do they do they often when the world changes around them they're better off to sometimes go and try something new and something that is more comfortable even though that's that in itself is a change they they feel like it's it gives them back control so um it's better for them. Virtus Health. Yes. All right. What actually is it? What's the history and what made you go to that organisation? Virtus Health is a network of IVF clinics, um, well, assisted reproductive services clinics because we don't just do IVF, and it's the fifth largest in the world. And it includes, in Australia, it includes IVF Australia, Melbourne IVF, TAS IVF Queensland Fertility Group, and we've got uh, Virtus Singapore, IVF Singapore, we've got Trianglen and Allgaard in Denmark, and Sims Group in Ireland, and Complete Fertility in the UK. So we've got a series of brands, and we're the fifth largest in the world, and we're the largest provider of reproductive genetic services in the Southern Hemisphere. And when did you join? I joined in March 2020. And middle of COVID, maybe? Just at the beginning. So Fancy that. Another challenge for you. The day that the Prime Minister said, everyone just stay at home, was my first day. We couldn't stay at home. And it was a super challenging period to, again, having to lead and learn. What were you walking into? What was the remit, Kate? Well, we were locked down. We were, we were shut down. So the, there was a suspension of elective surgery. So within three weeks of starting, I had to negotiate a liquidity pathway with our banks. I had to present on the, fu- the future strategy for Virtus. We had to stand the staff down and make an election between JobKeeper or the viability guarantee because we also run seven-day hospitals. So there were two options, government support options that we had to assess And it was really, really hard. There were different people who, like any crisis, it brought out the best of people and the worst of people. So some people tried to take advantage of the crisis. You know, some stakeholders, others were absolutely wonderful. And it was a very difficult time. Um, We had to communicate, put in place COVID safety 
protocols, which was something very new to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I had to deal with a board who didn't know me, I didn't know them, and we couldn't meet <laughs> So, in face-to-face. So, Why did you take the role? Again, because I think I wanted to be a board-facing CEO and I wanted to work in a smaller organisation because I felt, again, that that would be – and it's true <laughs> – I've worked in big organisations my whole career. That's like – Working in a smaller organisation, you need so much more skill. (laughs) Has been my experience. I'm sure it's not the same for everyone, but every day you look in the mirror, and when things have gone wrong, you go, "Well, that was your your doing." And when things have gone right, you go, "That was your doing." Your personal impact is far greater in a smaller organisation, and so you know your strengths and weaknesses are far more exposed than in a large organisation where there's a lot of who's really accountable for the decisions. <laughs> there's a governance structure that means that there's so many people who input into every decision, whereas in a small organisation, there's just far less people. So what you walked into and what you were promised, do they stack up? I think the three years that I've been there have been the most intense experience, and I don't know whether it's me. So we had COVID and all of the challenges that that bought. We bought a business – we did a capital raising. The ACCC challenged our acquisition of the business, even though we had sought clear legal advice, clear advice on the competition risk. So we were on the other end of the fire hose of the ACCC, and then we had an extremely contested takeover, So, which ended up with, I think, there were nine bids for the company. So, again, all of that. And the difference, again, with an organisation, the scale of Virtus, is there's probably four of us dealing with it, not an army or not a larger team that you get in a large organisation. So, again, you're personally dealing with all these challenges. And we developed it. in, in During COVID, we developed our corporate strategy about precision fertility and that we're doing the pilot of the product so we've sort of delivered a lot of the the strategy, which I guess contributed to the contested takeover. So what did uh, COVID do? Was it an accelerator? Was it um, COVID? COVID. Or what did it? Uh, COVID caused um, a shutdown initially, and we had to make a call as to how long it was going to be. And one of the board members said, "It's going to be six months. It's going to be six months." And I said, "I've just come from running private hospitals." They do complex procedures. If if all that surgery is shut down for six months, we'll have a much bigger crisis than COVID. So we made a bet that we acted on the belief that it would not be a long shutdown. So we wow. stood people down on JobKeeper yep. um, and kept the business sort of, you know, mothballed but going. Yep. Um, we started working immediately on restart. Okay. As soon as we shut down, we started planning how do we reopen effectively and efficiently. Once we reopened, we were ready to go. We made the election as to what government support to take and that was where being a lawyer was handy because mm-hmm. at that time there was no HR at Virtus, there was no legal at Virtus. So I read the contract myself and because I was a contract lawyer, I could understand it. I knew we were – and I said, we can't manage that. It's way too complex. So we immediately made another decision to to, to access JobKeeper in, as opposed to the viability guarantee. Yep. I go back now and look at the strategy we developed for the banks and we're pretty well 
executed on it. So, and it hasn't changed that much, even though it's three weeks in. And look, the board were pretty supportive. Like it was very difficult for them too. Brand new CEO, biggest crisis in a long time for us all as a country, a world, a community. And, um, we, we wrote our submission to the health minister as to why we felt we could reopen safely. And we, we reopened after four weeks of shutdown. And then we went through the most incredible demand. People through, I think in that post COVID, post initial COVID era, while everyone was in lockdowns, we stayed open. So we, we had given the various authorities confidence as to why we could provide safe services and why we were time critical. So we stayed open and went through the biggest demand that we'd ever experienced in history. Is that because people are at home? I think, yes. And and everyone focused on home and family. Like, yeah. I think it's the same reason why there was a lot of spending on renovations, yeah. on home goods and family things. And so we had this huge spike, which maintained for a number of years, and now we're sort of normalizing. But I think also people weren't going away, so they were spending money in a very focused way. Okay. What's happening now? Well, now we're private, which, mm. you know, I think in our industry being private is much better. Everything we invest. So do you in- want to talk to me what, what happened there? Well, <laughs> that's very – if you read the financial review, they chronicled it, – it's chronicled, but BGH, our new owners, bought 20% of the shares of Virtus Health. Yep. And then Capvest, a London-based private equity, put in a higher bid. And then there was a contest. And I think the first bid was uh, $7.10. And I think we sold for $8.25, or it might have been a bit higher than that. But the day I started, ironically, the share price was $1.56. So, and what did you, you get the sale away for? Uh, it was, uh, I think it was about $8.25. It's incredible, isn't it? So it was um, like, obviously that was COVID related, shared depression, but yeah, it was a it was a very good outcome for shareholders and now we're working to make it a very good outcome for the investors in BGH. You know, I often talk to our team, you know, people talk about private equity as like their rich people. Oh, on the barbarians at the door. Yeah, barbarians at the gate. And I keep mm-hmm. reminding people that the investors that BGH support are actually pension funds, people's retirement savings. So it's a big responsibility and we should take it like that. I think you can always reframe something a bit differently and they're actually wanting to invest in the technology and science that will actually make a difference over the next five years. Whereas being a listed company, shareholders didn't care about the next five years because they cared about their six monthly dividend. Yeah. So it is much better, I think, for a company like ours, for an organization like ours to be private because every dollar of profit we make, we reinvest back into the business other than paying down debt. We reinvest into getting better science, better technology, better people and being the best at what we do. And that's, that's really what we've been doing. And precision fertility is really the next era. Like, so what does it look like in the sense of the precision fertility, but the next five years, what does that translate into opportunity for the organization? I think in the next five years, we will have a patient experience that is more contemporary to being able to book online, chat with your doctor online, yeah, right. watch your embryos grow, um, like all the things that you experience with banking, with airlines, much more patient-centric technology that allows 
far easier access. I think AI will help with clinical decisions and support the future outcomes. And I think the sort of the technology that we're going to implement across Virtus will make it far better for staff, far easier for doctors to work and really not just to um, make it a sort of easier work experience, but to actually improve clinical outcomes through the clinical a- analytics that we'll be able to do with the data set. How do you deal with that? those comments? You're playing as if you're God in this space. Yeah, look, everyone has a different view mm. and, and fertility has been something that governments, church groups, everyone's always wanted to control or have input into. But I think whatever your God is has given human beings the ability to do this um, and to create life in this in vitro way as opposed to in vivo. And I think it's given people some incredible joy. And every time a family is created, I think it's a blessing. So that's how I rationalize it. The role of CEO, has it been as good as you hoped for? Has it been more challenging than you anticipated? Um, I think one of the when I was, we were listed, I think one of the joys of being a CEO was the relationship I had with the chair. Yep. We were a team and not in a you know, hold hands and skip down the road team, but in uh, that true ability to constructively challenge each other. And without her support, I would not, the last three years wouldn't have been the same. So, and it would have been much harder to be CEO, I think, without that sort of relationship with the chair, because it was really, really difficult. And, and again, we built a relationship of trust and cooperation, and that allows you to actually speak the truth, you know, like whenever I was out of line, she would tell me or could tell me and I trusted her completely. So, I never felt I listened, you know, I never felt defensive. I always listened. So, I think to me that demonstrated the importance of that relationship being one of trust and cooperation. I think the CEO role, like I like being a leader. Um, It's something that I wanted I sort of wanted to do for a while, but I don't know that you need to be, as I said, a CEO to be a leader because ultimately being CEO, you unless you've got personal power, there is no role really anymore that gives you positional power. You know, young people, they just don't accept it. You need to have personal power to, to influence people. And I think that's the thing that means that being CEO is good, but it's not everything. Personal power. Yeah. How's yours developed in the last 12 months then? Because you, you, you got- Yeah, I think- Listed. Yeah. You've got sale. <laughs> you've got government forces. You've got yeah. you know, this big industry you're in. And you're changing people's lives just, just to do your business. Uh, I think, like, it's hard because you've got to- You've got to communicate effectively. I think that's the critical thing. And often my derailer, and we've all got one, is that when I feel very passionately about something, my communication can become less effective and more emotive. And so my personal power has been all about controlling that. Um, and Passion's pe- good sometimes. Passion that. can be good and anger can be good and being, you know, sort of showing no emotion can mean that people don't 
I think the occasional outburst can focus the mind, you know. <laughs> but if it's too much, then people desensitize to it. And if it's too emotional, people will dismiss it. So that's something I think as far as personal power I've had to work on. I've had to work with new owners. I've had to work with, you know, build new relationships. And that's like starting again. And you've had to convince a whole new set of people that your idea is a good one and that often there's a very much a trust but verify and <laughs> a approach and that's okay too. You know, I sort of feel like if you can't back yourself to to demonstrate the value that you can create, then you shouldn't be in the game. What's next for you, Kate? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I I think I've accomplished everything that I've always wanted to and what's next for me is creating like – What's important for me in being CEO now is creating an environment in which other people can reach their potential. I really feel like I've reached my, I've done everything I've wanted to do. I sit there, I look back and think I've got no regrets, but that's what I want to do now. And and I'm not necessarily as a next step thinking boards, I'm thinking maybe, I don't know, executive coaching, something like that. I feel like I want to give back. That's how I feel for the next chapter. Did you have any great coaches during your career? I had two people who completely changed my career and I had um, people who I really admired. I never really had a coach. Yep. No. And I think it's sort of, it's got to be a little bit organic. So I'm not really sure. I haven't really thought about how it all works, but because I think, you know, if it's, it's got to be a relationship. And those people who changed your career, they were in roles of authority or they were in roles of advisory? They were probably in roles of authority, but they took a risk on me. Once was when I was at the law firm and as a graduate, I was pregnant okay. and I thought I would have to resign. Yeah, okay. um, but the professional staff partner at the time advocated that I should be given maternity leave and ultimately I was. And I just, like I went in to say to her, oh, I'm pregnant. I was married and I said, I'm pregnant. I'm probably going to have to resign. And she was like, no way. You don't have to resign. You know, that's ridiculous. And yeah. But there was no entitlement to maternity leave back then. Yeah. And then the second was the when I applied for an operations role and was given that opportunity by the chairman at, at Transfield at the time. She said, we put finance people in operational roles. Why can't we put someone with a legal background? We'll give it a go. And so those two moves probably changed the trajectory of my career materially, and I want to do it for others. So why are we seeing more CEOs who are female? Good question. I think because boards have become conservative and they want people who are experienced CEOs, and that narrows the pool. I think that's a big reason. And I think there is no reason. Like, I had been a COO when I was at Ramsey. I was chief operating officer and I'd been responsible for strategy, the operations, done a whole, but I was considered not, I didn't have CEO experience. And so, you know, it was only again the chairman who sort of said, well, she run a $5 billion business. But often what's put forward is someone who has CEO experience and that narrows the pool of women considerably. So I think until boards actually think differently about the pool of people and aren't worried about their own brand, how they defend their appointments and actually appoint people who have the potential to do something really good, we won't see female CEOs. 
it's interesting you say that. The and whether it's male or female, the emphasis placed on experience in sector. Personal leadership. All P and L experience, yeah, you know. Leadership qualities. So here's someone starting out in the, as a nurse, not many years later running a major P and L. And also having to deal with government authorities at the yeah. time too, right? Playing that role you were doing. Yeah. You weren't trade up for that at university? No. Nope. So yeah, there's resistance in Australia or Oh, I've had some people suggest you have to have an MBA to go into a PL role, which is just ridiculous, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so how are we going to change that? That's a very good question. That may be the next chapter. Maybe. Kate, when you look back at that young woman ready to embark on that nursing career, what advice would you give her now? I think it goes back to my old little mantra, which I've learned because it's not something I had probably back then, but is, you know, fear not trying more than you fear failure. Um, that's what I tell myself because I've learned that, probably didn't have it back when I first started out. But don't fear failure because that is where you learn. On that, Kate, been a fabulous discussion today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>